you doing <laughs> not bad <laughs> welcome to uncertain things thanks i appreciate your welcome <laughs> <laughs> today we have angel eduardo he's a culture commentator a writer director of editorial at the fair organization co-host of the podcast fair perspectives you might have read a few of his articles especially his response to the harper's letter yeah. or his um attempt to take steel manning, you know, the idea that you should take your opponent's arguments at its strongest um, before trying to challenge it, to the next level, which he calls star manning. So we talk about how to have useful, interesting, meaningful arguments in an age of censorship and a, a general unwillingness to actually engage. And insanity. And insanity, yes. Mm-hmm. We we compare our, our different approaches to arguments, his being more empathy-based, mine being more chaos, anarchy, and dissonance-focused. We followed on to our conversation with Yasha Munk a little bit, but at the very end, we get into the word Latinx, which I've been wanting to talk about for a while, and Angel has a very impassioned <laughs> perspective on that word, which I very much enjoyed. So we'll just remind you that uh, you can follow us on uncertain.substack.com. If you have any comments or thoughts or suggestions, please send them to us on the social media if you want to support us. Share it with your friends and maybe even your enemies. Or even give us a few schmickles on the Substacks. Um, Do it! If you want. If you want. We're not pressuring. No coercion. Mm-hmm. Well, a little coercion. A wee bit. Some coercion. Some coercion. <laughs> and Ear coercion. <laughs> And with this modicum of coercion. (laughs) Angel Eduardo. Somebody needs to invent the pop-up bookshelf. It's like like, like, like a jacket you put on or something that just like puts it on behind you. I feel like it's something that that Kindle would come up with at some point. So Mm. that you don't need to have the vanity. Like a hologram that comes out of it. Exactly, because the bookshelf is a vanity project, right? Right, right? because you don't, you have everything digitized. It would be cool, though, if it was actually synced to your Kindle and it was actually what you were reading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be great. Mm. That's a cool idea. (laughs) Pitch it to somebody. So much money left on the table in this podcast. Um, uh, Angel, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. I I also need to apologize. I'm abnormally and obnoxiously sober right now, so I'm I'm I apologize. Let's get into it. Um, I sure. I'd love to hear uh just kind of a a, a bit of a uh, background from you and how you see your um, <laughs> uh, wading into the culture war <laughs> experience. What motivated you into even like stepping into this morass and putting your toes into that water? Yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, compulsion, I guess. I can't help myself when I was always that kid who would say, that's not true, when someone would say something false, you know, or I, that I thought was false, or that didn't, didn't coincide with what my understanding, you know, so I, uh, I was that annoying kid to my parents where I would call them on their bullshit. And, uh, you know, particularly in a Spanish speaking households, you don't, you're not supposed to do that. And that's not, it doesn't end well for you. <laughs> so, 
but I've, I just, I can't help it. I mean, I, I guess it's, it's an extension of being a kid and being confused and trying to figure the world out and then kind of, you know, hearing about a rule and going, okay, cool. That's the rule. And then seeing the rule being flagrantly broken everywhere around me and then just going, wait, what? And then I, I have to figure it out because I, I have this unsettled feeling of like, I don't understand how this works. So is yeah. the principle or the, not the principle, the compulsion, is it uh, trying to reconcile dissonance or, or that you see in the world that, or if you recognize some sort of hypocrisy or um, discontinuity in, in the way that people talk about things? Or is it just a general impulse to, uh, you know, to challenge things? Is, is the thing that you push against dissonance or conformity? It's definitely dissonance mm -hmm. um, because all I've ever wanted is peace and quiet. <laughs> like all I've, all I've ever wanted is for things to just make sense and be organized and for me not to have to worry about it. Um, and I keep coming up against the opposite of those things. <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, just so, I, I'm, The reason I yeah. asked it because as I heard you speak this, it's kind of clarified to me. I guess the, the the different in motivation is because I think for me, it's always, and maybe that's my Jewish upbringing, but for me, the desire mm. has always been to increase dissonance. <laughs> it's, uh, I, I, it's just an heuristic tendency, I guess. And, and, and conformity mm. is the thing that would scare me. So if I hear too many people just agree on an idea, it would just make me physically uncomfortable and would, would make yeah. me, okay, something at least needs to be poked around there. And like, there needs to be a little less harmony in this room. I definitely hear that. I think, I think I would feel the same way. Um, but not because of some desire for dissonance, but just the fact that I've, I've, I've learned enough at this point to know that uh -huh. if everyone around me is agreeing about everything, mm. they're missing something because I'm always missing something and I'm never right about everything. I've, I've been wrong probably 20 times today, <laughs> you know? So, so so I just, that to me is just a red flag. You know, usually that level of agreement is, is motivated by something other than, you know, the actual facts on the ground. It's more of, you know, the desire to agree, the, the desire to just make nice. And in my experience, that never lasts because it's, it's a kind of foundation of sand. It's kind of built on sand. So, <laughs> um, so I immediately go, no, I'm, there's sand. Yeah. This is yeah. sand. I'm not, I'm not settling here. This is not, this is probably not. A good it's idea. a super strong heuristic when um, everyone agrees, sure, something else is going on. Yeah, for sure. As you often say, Adam, if the left and right are agreeing on something, run, run away. That's, that's <laughs> my, that's oh, my, I don't know about that. <laughs> that's my motto. If, when you see bipartisanship is a yeah. bad sign. Um, <laughs> nah, I, <laughs> it depends. It depends on the thing, I guess. It's like part of so much of what I'm trying to, uh, alert people to or 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 remind people of is that we we really do agree on most things we really do have that those things in common um these fundamental values and desires because we're all wired pretty much the same way we're all human beings we're not that psychologically different we want food we want love we want safety we want you know all those that we want comfort you know we don't want needless suffering there's actually something there that i wanted to ask you about but i'm going to have to pin, put a pin in it um but I'm, I'm sharing it so that I don't forget because I do have that tendency. But I do want to ask you about specifically the shared uh, values um, that mm. you see in, in at yeah. least among Americans. But um, Yeah, because I was going to say, I think becoming a politician, you kind of get 
separated from your human instincts in a way like the whole (laughs) system incentivizes you away from humanity almost and then you become like an I don't want to say a non-human, but you know what I mean? You, yeah. You're not, it's harder, but sorry, go ahead, Adam. I, I interrupted uh, your, your uh, question, uh, you, you, your role. You can't, in a way, you also become a true human in, in the, that selfish impulse, but we'll, we'll, we'll go back to this. I, I, <laughs> I, I was just going back to your uh, childhood. I'm just wondering if you have a memory of, because uh, <laughs> you were saying about the places where you'd find the uh, contradictions and try to, to reconcile them. If you have a memory of something that was meaningful to you, at an early age mm-hmm. where you saw that things aren't as they are presented to you? It'd be hard to find one because I think it probably happened every day. <laughs> you know, I mean, I remember, you know, I, doing the annoying thing, just asking why over and over again until you've deconstructed the universe. Um, but I was doing that to to one of the priests at my Catholic school when I was a kid. That doesn't go well and, usually. <laughs> it went fine because, <laughs> you know, eventually he just, he just, stopped responding <laughs> but but um and i don't remember what the what the initial question was but you know it was basically breaking down some religious precept or something and we were outside actually in new york city we were outside the building um probably during recess or or maybe right after school or something and uh and he as as i was asking why you know there was a friend with me we were both doing it and as as we were asking why he was taking like steps backward and, and like trying to get away from us. And we just kept walking forward and we just kept walking towards him and just saying, why? And he'd be like, well, because whatever. And I really don't remember even the details that he was giving us, but I just distinctly remember him walking backwards all the way to the curb and then having nowhere else to go because otherwise he's going to step into traffic. So... <laughs> Nice metaphor for your relationship with religion there. <laughs> right. So that, yeah. So uh, that's why, that's why it sticks in my head is because it, it's, it's such a great visual metaphor. Like I, I, I got to the curb and beyond that point, it's dangerous. Right. So he had to just stop uh, and he just had to stop responding. And of course I was being annoying. I wasn't being clever. I wasn't trying to actually learn or understand something, but it's, it's just funny that it, it happened that way and it stuck in my mind because of that sort of no, but the lesson is almost more or is almost stronger for that right because mm. it shows that you don't need to be sophisticated you don't need to actually know what you're talking about to in order to strain the other person's um actual convictions <laughs> which, which yeah. tells you something about their convictions <laughs> yeah, but I I don't want to overemphasize that because you can deconstruct everything. You can get to to that point where you're the annoying philosopher who's deconstructing the meanings of words, and then you can't even communicate anymore because nothing means everything. Anything. So you can take it to a point where you're not even really doing anything substantial. You're just being annoying, um, which is what I was doing. <laughs> <for sure. laughs> um, I I would argue that at that point, that's where you actually. And at some point, when you really go into that over deconstructionism, you have yeah. to apply some degree of of authority. And but but then you need to be yeah. honest that at some point we are just making arbitrary decisions and basing our our society mm-hmm. or structures of authority on top of them because we need to because right. otherwise, like you said, it all just falls into grains of sand. Right. Um, let's let's yeah. let's move to your um, your coming of age politically. <laughs> when does that instinct start um, getting applied into American politics? Probably like in high school. I was very much in the George Carlin school of like, fuck all these people, right? Like, I don't believe them. I don't like them. I can see the lie. 
I can see, I can see the manipulation. Um, you know, sp- speaking of, of giant douche and turd sandwich. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I had, I had very much that attitude of like, fuck them all. Right. Because I can, I, you know, I had, I had become very cynical and I could see, <clears throat> I could see the way that the machine was working. Right. So I was a little bit too smart for my own good in that way. But I, that, and that kind of mixed with just my being highly sensitive and, and, and really just disappointed in, in the way that things things were, the way that people were, the way that our systems were. When you say sensitive, you, know, I, you I, mean you took the dysfunction of, of the system, this, or this cynical point uh, of view or cynical realization personally. It, it, it made you feel, <laughs> I don't know, melancholy, well, depressed. Yeah. Well, it was, more, it was more like, you know, if I can figure it out, if I can see that this is wrong, why can't everybody mm-hmm. else? And the fact that they don't see it is super dis- disappointing. It's just incredibly dispiriting, right? Um, and you know, my my perspective has shifted slightly there, but but that was the attitude that I had. Where you know, like I'm not special. Like this is clearly wrong, right? Like these people are clearly lying. Why are we all tolerating this? Why is this okay? Why do we just accept the fact that politicians lie? Like everyone just kind of chuckles and goes, you know, politicians, you know, they're always lying. And people just kind of accept that and they keep voting for them. And, and I, you know, I was always like, why would you do that though? Like, we know that that's bad. We know that this, that's creating the mess that we're in. Why would you do this? I, I didn't understand. Do you remember what, sin, what exact events triggered that sense of cynicism? Was it the Iraq war? Was it? No, I, I mean, I, I really don't think that I, I was, I really think I was projecting a lot. I really think that it's, you know, I, I, I had a rough time in school. I didn't enjoy it at all. And particularly high school, it was just really difficult for me. I was going through so many things personally and, and just a hypersensitive kid generally, just a hyper, hypersensitive kid and, you know, wounded by, you know, unrequited affection and all that sort of stuff, high school stuff that happens. And I was just projecting all that stuff onto the world and seeing the world through that lens of like, everything is terrible and, you know, well, people are terrible and I feel totally alone. And, you know, the most universal feeling in the world is loneliness. I was so sucked into just my personal struggles and all the things that I was dealing with that I didn't have any kind of, you know, sophisticated or even remotely sophisticated viewpoint on, you know, geopolitics or even domestic politics. I had, I had no idea about any of that. <laughs> um but I, the thing that I did know and the thing that I did see was bullshit. And, and speaking of poignant moments, I remember being a kid and staying home from school because I was sick or whatever, or I pretended to be sick. I don't know. But you watch, you're trying to watch TV, right? You're like, oh, I have all this free time, right? I'm going to watch TV. You turn on the TV, there's nothing for you because you're not supposed to be there, right? There's daytime television for, for I guess, retirees and stuff like that. And then there's kids programming, like young kids, right? People under school age. Uh, and I would, I would just be flipping through the channels and I would see the commercials. And the commercials, because they weren't, they weren't designed or made for someone my age when I'm like 10, they're made for someone who's like four or five, you know, uh, they're different. The language is different. The editing is different. The, the, the way that they're presenting stuff to you is different. And because I was older, right, just by pure accident, right? There's nothing about me being, you know, in any kind of way intellectually advanced. 
I noticed all the manipulation. I noticed all the little manipulative tactics, right? I noticed the way that the way that the announcer was was saying things and the way that they would put stuff on the screen and the way that they would present these these things because they're trying to just get a five year old to freak out and want their mom to buy them something. Um, so I just I never forgot that and I noticed I noticed it and once I noticed it, I noticed it everywhere else, right? So I noticed it in commercials that were meant for me. I noticed it in ads that were meant for me. I noticed it, you know, at the mall, like, oh, you're trying to sell me this thing. And I can see what you're doing now because I get the, you know, you you get kind of it's kind of like a it's almost like a vaccine, right? That you get like a, a a weaker version of the thing and it inoculates you against the stronger version. So by the time I'm in high school and politics is slowly kind of seeping into my my, you know, field of vision. Yeah, like I can see it. I can see, oh, this is why they talk like this. This is why they wear this stuff. This is why they have the American flag pins. And this is why, you know, th- this is the whole machine that's going on, right? And then, of course, somebody like George Carlin was really helpful because he would point to that stuff too in a really beautiful way, an eloquent way, in a really funny way. And that would give me insight. And then I just became super hungry for that sort of stuff. Like, yeah, show me how this works. Let me see. You know, let me kind of learn from everybody else instead of trying to figure it out myself. So by the time I got to, you know, turning 18 and they, they dragged us all into the auditorium to uh, force us to register to vote, right? Like we had no choice. We had to go in there and we had to put our name down. Um, so I was like, no way I'm joining one of these f- stupid teams. I'm not doing it. So I registered as an independent and that remained the case until, uh, what, like two years ago, or I don't even remember now, but when Andrew Yang was running and it was for the Democratic primary and New York has closed primaries. So the only way you can cast your vote is if you are one of the members of the party. So I changed to Democrat just so that I can vote for Andrew Yang. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I've been meaning to go back and, and fix that because I, <laughs> I don't want to stay. Um, so yeah. yeah, I'm definitely, a, a, I'm a Marxist. I'm a Groucho Marxist, <laughs> which, and by, by which I mean, uh, I would never want to be a part of any club that would have me as a member. I'm a Groucho Marxist when it comes to principles. If you don't like them, I have others. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, though, because I'm thinking like how you get from that to your response to the Harper's letter, which was, I thought, really, mm. really beautifully written. But it th- there is a little bit of like a, uh, I'm signing my name to this tribe because there's mm. clearly a- <laughs> there's clearly a t- tribe that's you know, at their gates with pitchforks. So I like to like mm. show my support. So I'm, I'm curious to kind of like the through line. And then, and then once we get there, I do want to talk about that, that your article in response to that letter. Cause I think there's a lot to un- unpack in that, but um, yeah. yeah how, what's the journey from, from where you left us in high school independent mm-hmm. to, to, to getting to that, that response to that letter? I mean, the, the response to the letter to me was just, you know, the same thing as before is just people not making sense to me, right? Like this doesn't make any sense. Like, you know, I, uh, the Harper's letter came out and, and right. And for context for people who may have not read the Harper's letter at the time or not, right. who don't care about the culture war. Can you just give the background as well? Yeah, sure. So, you know, Thomas Chatterton Williams and a few other people kind of spearheaded the, the writing of this letter, which I haven't looked at in forever, but it's, you know, I think it was like three paragraphs and it was a very you know, two of which denouncing work. Trump. <laughs> yeah. Well, they definitely mentioned him. Yeah, it yeah, was like but, throat clearing. Uh, we are not for Trump. I suppose. Yeah, I suppose. And, you know, 
I guess I understand that, but you know, I, I, so they, they wrote this letter because, you know, as a response to the, you know, the supposedly non-existent, uh, climate of censoriousness that a lot of people were experiencing, uh, or at least, you know, they were feeling something, something was happening, something was going on and people were feeling some way about it. I mean, I think, you know, there are legitimate reasons and there's legitimate evidence to suggest that there is certainly something to this. Um, but anyway, these people wanted to, to say something. They wanted to kind of, you know, at least plant a flag and say, Hey, like, you know, time out. Can we please just remember these particular values? Right. I think it was called a letter on, um, free speech and open debate or something to that effect. Um, and it was, you know, the, the word that they kept using was anodyne. Right. And it really was right. So I, you know, when it came out, I read it, Thomas Chatterton Williams, whom I love, uh, he, he was one of the main writers there and he shared it. I clicked on it. I read it and I thought, oh, cool. Yeah, great. And, you know, <laughs> I went on with my day and then it, it exploded, right? People had the craziest takes about it. Um, you know, that these are just the main one that, that annoyed me was that these are just, um, you know, rich and privileged people whinging about finally being taken to task for for the horrible things that they do and say, right? Which completely misses the point of the letter, as far as I'm concerned. Just for um, context, the LA Times ran a column and said, cancel culture is not the problem. The Harper's letter is. Right. Yeah, which is, uh, okay. <laughs> um, I guess what they really mean is, is our interpretation of the letter right. is the problem. And so, sure. Uh, but, you know, your interpretation may, may or may not be correct, right? And, and I think... I think, you know, especially given how, how plain and straightforward the letter was to me, that made the reaction so much more irritating because it really felt disingenuous. It really felt like people were trying not to understand the point. And the point, of course, is that people like J.K. Rowling and people like Thomas Chatterton Williams can take more of a hit. You know, Malcolm Gladwell... Salman Rushdie, all these people. Margaret Atwood. Right. So all these people are, are you know, pr really high profile people. And they care about, obviously, you know, someone like Salman Rushdie, like he very much cares about <laughs> this particular issue, right? Um, for, for hopefully obvious reasons. Um, but they are, in, they are in positions where they can take the heat for people like me who didn't have that luxury, right? I, I couldn't have necessarily written or signed on to that letter. Not that anybody would know who I was, but you know, if I put my name onto something like that, there would be a significant risk for me that wouldn't be there for someone like Salman Rushdie, right? Or J.K. Rowling for sure. She, you know, she's gotten heat. I'm sure it's been inc incredibly unpleasant for her, um, but she's okay in terms of her life, right? Like it's not like her whole world would come crashing and burning. Um, and so I, I found myself, you know, kind of arguing back and forth with people, trying to get them to see that they're missing the point. And it just, it reached a kind of fever pitch for me. And, um, I, you know, it also definitely has to do with being cooped up, you know, uh, being cooped up because of COVID and all that sort of stuff and all the, all the other mayhem that was happening around that same time. I found myself, you know, I, I should write something. You know, I, sh I should just write something. And I had a I had a kind of opportunity because I had already sort of submitted something to Aereo Magazine and, and Helen Pluckrose. I very I did it very quickly on purpose because I didn't want to be ruminating and worrying about what might happen 
if I did it. I was kind of worried. Can you ex- can you describe what the the climate of censoriousness felt like to you? Like what? How were mm. you experiencing it? Bef- I mean, before the Harper's letter, like put <clears throat> very banal words to it. Yeah. <laughs> how were you experiencing it as a as a creator? As a creator, or even as an observer, I would say. In terms of the observing, what I wrote in my piece, one of the things that I said was, I aspire to be one of these people like Thomas Chatterton Williams and John McWhorter and these people who are contributing to the discourse. Like I felt like that was something I really wanted to do because I felt like I had something to say. I had a perspective that I really wanted to share. And I thought I could be useful and helpful in that. And, you know, I'm an artist, so I want to create art for its own sake, but also I want people to consume and enjoy it and have it be meaningful to them. That's part of the process. So I found myself worrying about my ability to do that. I found myself, you know, wondering like, am I, you know, what's going to happen here? And so I was questioning all that sort of stuff. But really, really the thing that did it was the fact that, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter protests were happening and you know all the solidarity that was coming from that which is beautiful and well intentioned right and and i i feel it very deeply um in that visceral sense but you know i think i mentioned in the piece too like the you know the conversations that i was hearing and the thing the behavior that i was observing around me you know people that i knew people that i associated with and just people on twitter and all this sort of stuff that was going on in the media i i felt like an atheist at the table during grace, right? Like I'm just kind of sitting there going like, this doesn't make sense to me. That doesn't make any sense. No, that's wrong. What are you saying? You know? And, um, I found myself feeling that universal feeling of being totally alienated and alone. Specifically, what was it that you found alienating? Was it the, the complete absorption of Robin D'Angelo type language? Was it the, yeah, it was, it was all of these things kind of combined, but it was, it was, you know, the, the the kind of what I consider to be very thoughtless and unnuanced responses to things, you know, like nuance like, is a banned word here, but carry on. <laughs> I guess you know the black square, sharing the black square, making the black square your your oh on you know, like Instagram, your was Instagram, mm. yeah, that sort of thing, like whatever. I guess like that's you know it's not that's harmless, I suppose, but you know that sort of stuff, and then the Black Lives Matter sign up on your on your on your window. It just seemed very, very like nobody put any thought into this. They're just kind of going with it. And I had questions, right? Because I'm like, you know, so here, here's a great way to, to, here's a great way to illustrate it. So there's, there's somebody that I know who posted a picture of themselves on social media. They were wearing a t-shirt and the t-shirt had the names of, you know, Trayvon Martin, Sandra Bland, you know, Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, right? Like it's just a list of names across the chest of this t-shirt, right? And that, that was it. That was all the context. It was literally just their names, right? But you knew the message, right? The point was these are all, you know, racialized black people who were murdered by police. And I stand with them. And this is why the movement and all that sort of stuff, right? Like it's, it's very clear from the way that it's presented that that's the message you're supposed to get. But I look at that t-shirt and I thought, well, each and each, each one of those was a tragedy. Each one of those is terrible, but each one of those is a completely different scenario with completely different people and completely different police precincts um, with completely different circumstances. And they're being lumped together as though they're exactly the same. 
And the reason they're being lumped together because as though they're exactly the same is, is because of, you know, the immutable characteristic of their, the color of their skin, right? Like this idea that that's all that's necessary, right? Like, like even, you know, like. And the profession of their assailant. Right. But not even that because Trayvon Martin wasn't even killed by a police officer. Right. right? George Zimmerman was a civilian at the time. And, and not all of those police officers were white, quote unquote white. Right. So it's just way more complicated. Right. But that's when, when it comes to police, the focus is on the culture and the history of the institution. But your point totally stands. Um, I forget exactly what the names were, but you know, that list of people that you hear about, right. The, the circumstances are, are, are different and that doesn't excuse any of it. Right. But it's, it's just more complicated. The situation is more complicated. And then, you know, you, when you happen to know that police kill too many people overall of any kind, um, when you know that in the back of your head, right? Like I forget what the numbers are now, but you know, in, in 2019, how many quote unquote black people were murdered by police? It was like some small double digit number, right? Versus, versus what, what people's perception is, which is like, it must be hundreds, you know? So I just, I'm a, I was aware of these, these kind of inconsistencies and discrepancies. And it made me worried about what, what sorts of behaviors would come about as a result of these misunderstandings or mischaracterizations, right? I, I was concerned about all that stuff. So I was just like, I, I really wish that people would make sense, you know, and I found solace in hearing reasonable people talking about these things, but in my social circles, there were very few. And so that was kind of the real reason why I was like, I need to just say something because I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm going crazy. Like I was telling my, my wife, you know, like, I feel like I'm losing my mind. I feel like I'm the only person who can see and everybody else is just kind of freaking out. Very, we just spoke with Megan Dom and she has a very similar experience except that she was just on the tail end of a divorce. So she was like, she used to have her partner to, to, to at least not feel crazy with. And then when they got divorced, she was like, I, where, what is happening yeah. in the universe right now? <laughs> right. Yeah. You need your anchors. And so, I, yeah. So I wrote that piece about the Harper's letter just saying, you know, like the whole point of the letter was that they can take the heat and they're trying to take it for me because if I say something and I get fired, if I, my life gets destroyed, you might never hear about me. Right. Mm-hmm. The, the thing that I, I, I tweeted this a little while ago, but the cancel culture catch 22 is if we don't highlight cancellations, if we don't highlight people whose lives have been destroyed because they said or did something at least, you know, either perceived to be terrible or, you know, mild or whatever it is. Right. But, but they've had their lives destroyed as a result of this climate of censoriousness, then they suffer in silence and they suffer alone and we never hear about them. And we're told that cancel culture doesn't exist. Right. But if we, if we find and highlight these incidents and we say, Hey, look, this is a thing that's happening, right? This is not cool. Like we can't, you know, we can't do this to people. Then they go, well, look, this person's like becoming, you know, this person's becoming a public figure. They have a public platform now. They're not really canceled, right? So it's like there's there's no way to win there. Right. But I was just trying to say, hey, like this is the point of it. And can we please just extend one another some compassion and some charity? So getting back to your your question about the, you know, the tribe thing, I didn't really see it as me joining any tribe. I didn't see it as me rejecting any tribe. I, I just saw it as me saying like, hey, like, can we please make make sense? And can we please be more reasonable? Can we please be more compassionate to one another? Communication is hard. Yeah. This is one of the things that I think I think you think about a lot from just judging by your your writing and 
Um, I listened to your conversation with Monica Guzman on your podcast as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you you think a lot about the language and the rhetoric that yeah. the sides are using. Um, and and I'm curious if you remember the in your in your article that you wrote in response to the Harper's letter. Um, mm-hmm. In I'm gonna miss is it Aero Aero magazine? Aero, yeah. An Aero magazine. Um, there was there was one particular commenter that got a bit feisty. I don't know if you recall, but there was like they wrote like a mm. long response to you, and you in kind wrote a really long response, which I think. I think kind of encapsulates some of the the typical kind of rhetorical tactics and the way that you attempted to mm. disarm them. I don't know if you, but if you remember that that comment and that response, I'd love for you to kind of diagnose a little bit, like what was happening there and how are you navigating it. <laughs> I don't I don't remember the details because I feel like there were a bunch of responses and I actually went out of my way to to reply, um, because I wanted to model the kind of discourse that I, that I was trying to advocate for. I don't remember the details there, but, but my general approach is to ignore the invective. There's no reason to respond to it, right? It's just, you know, you're saying nasty things, um, and then just focus on whatever their point is and, and address it as, as clearly as I possibly can. So I, I'm sure that what I probably did was copy pasted their entire response and then just kept it next to me and then just went point by point and responded as clearly as I could to clarify, you know, whether it was a misunderstanding or just a total non sequitur or, or just something I disagreed with. If mere, if, if time wasn't an issue, what would be, how, how do you, where's your threshold for engaging? Mm. Uh, I think there's a point where you can tell if somebody's just not ready, if somebody's just not there, you can try your best. Uh, there's a point where you you can you can kind of realize that you've been saying the same thing over and over again for 20 minutes, um, and that there's no really no other way to say it. So at that point, I would just say, I think I don't know how much more I can say here. I feel like I've said it already. So, you know, unless unless you unless something shifts there, then I don't think we can keep going because there's no point. Or or you know, if if they're being incredibly hostile and and not responding at all, then it's not a conversation. But then it all it all has to do with the way they're responding. There's nothing that like off the bat would indicate that you're going to write someone off. In theory, if time wasn't an issue, you would give every person a, a one chance at least of engaging. Um, I give them infinite chances, honestly, because the thing is that yeah, this one this one crashed and burned. This conversation went nowhere, nowhere, or it got really bad. But next time, maybe maybe they'll listen right so i my my goal really is is the victory is not in changing somebody's mind right first of all you know who who does that who changes their mind in a single conversation right in one sitting who does that nobody but also you know it's not about you changing other people's minds it's about you connecting and understanding with people um because you know your mind should also be open to changing right you can't have this attitude of like going in and and I'm going to fix the problem because I already know the answer, right? Well, maybe I don't know the answer. Maybe there's something I don't understand. So you have to go in with that. And for me, the victory really comes in leaving a conversation where all parties are open to the possibility of another conversation, you know? So like, at least it went well enough that this person is willing to talk to you again, even if you still completely disagree, even if you haven't budged at all from your positions, you know, that, that 
openness to dialogue, that is the only thing you need, really. Because then 10, 12 conversations down the line, who knows? So like this is an element of, of I guess, ca- compassion in the approach um, mm. that I think Adam and, and I will occasionally struggle with. Because we talk a lot about having this podcast be hopefully what we hope, like a model for conversation, for mm. uh, respectfully pushing back on people. For well, not necessarily of, respectfully. Off, almost always, <laughs> depending <laughs> on the guest, respectfully pushing back. Um, and, but the thing that we find actually kind of hardest, it's like it's really easy for us to like dig in on the abstract topics and like start uh, like debating them. It's mm-hmm. harder for us to to bring a little bit more like hu- humanity and, and empathy into our conversations. That's like that's like not necessarily as natural, I guess, for mm. for us in this podcast. And I think that's something that kind of distinguishes your approach and like I think what you call uh, star manning as well. It's like this idea of of bringing and, and maybe more like a compassion, actually connection. Like that seems to be like a little bit of what you're saying. It's like what's the point of having these conversations if you're not willing to connect with the person that you're about to engage with on a more mm. fundamental level. It's really it's really just the recognition that you're not speaking to a monster, right? The ver- it's it's almost it's so rare you know the the occurrence of of true monsters which you know we would call like psychopaths. Those are so rare that it's highly unlikely that that's who you're engaging with. It's far more likely that you're just engaging with somebody who didn't have the upbringing that you did, didn't have the education that you did, didn't have the the experiences that you did, um, and doesn't have the temperament that you do, doesn't have the the proclivities that you do, you know, the the psychology, the you know, everything, right? The the even the socioeconomic status that you do, right? All those things play a part into how we see the world and act in it. Um, and again, you know. It's not to say that yours is right automatically, right? You have to be open to that as well. But it's it's really just understanding that this is a human being who is coming from a different place. And if you want to, if you want to change their mind, or if you want to influence their behavior, if you want to oppose what they're doing, right? Because you you believe it's harmful, you're going to be much more effective if you actually understand why they're doing it, why they believe it, why they care about it. And the reason why they care about those things, the reason why they're so animated about it is the same reason why you care. It's the same reason why you're animated about it. It's because you think it's true and you think it's important and you think it'll make the world better, right? That's why you're doing it. That's why you care about, you know, this person voted this way. I can't believe they did that. Why? Because you're you're convinced that that person that they voted for is going to do harm, mm-hmm. and you want to mitigate that harm. Well, guess what? They feel exactly the same way from the other direction, and the reason they voted for that person is to mitigate harm that they're seeing. So you have to at least not necessarily agree with it, but you have to at least understand what that is. You have to find it, and that's you know just just for your own edification, for your just as a human being a fallible human being, right? Which is almost a, you know, a redundancy <laughs> to say, but as a, just as a human being, you want to be open to change because man, imagine, holy crap, I've been wrong about X, Y, Z this entire time. Look at all the damage I caused or look at the damage I could have caused by having this misapprehension, right? 
you have to be open to that for that reason, but also for practical reasons. Like if you want to have a positive effect on the world, if you want to fix things, if you want to influence people to do better and be better, you have to understand where they're coming from, right? It's like sending a letter to the wrong address, you know? <laughs> there's a phrase, there's a phrase that's, uh, or I guess a, a tool that is often used in the conversation that I, I don't like using myself. And I, I think it's misleading and sometimes counterproductive to even use it analytically um, mm -hmm. of, you know, the distinction between good faith and bad faith in, yeah. in engagement. What, what's your thought about trying to, to even apply that uh, lens? I think people lean on that too much. I understand why, because, you know, basically good faith is that somebody's, uh, you know, operating honestly, they're engaging with you honestly, they're trying to they're trying to understand and they're not trying to be sneaky about it. And bad faith is, you know, I'm trying to mischaracterize you. I'm trying, you know, I'm not really trying to listen to you. I'm trying to just defeat you rather than understand. So I, I get it, but I think people lean on that too much because to, in my, in my view that, you know, why is someone being bad faith? Why is someone being dishonest? Why is someone employing trickery and, and deception in their engagement with you? It's because they're convinced of something and it's because they think that is the best way to, to deal with you. And the reason they think it's the best way to deal with you is because they're convinced of certain things about you, about whatever they're, whatever it is they're trying to accomplish, mm -hmm. right? So everything that people do is justifiable to them. It's a, it's at the very least a justifiable means right. to a righteous end. No one is walking around saying, how can I make the world worse today? Aha, I'll do that. You know, nobody does that. Mm, I nobody. might disagree, but... And, you know, basically nobody, right? And the people who actually do think that way, there's something wrong with them. We call those people psychopaths. Those people are mentally ill, right? It's not someone you're, you're going to encounter who is just, you know, cackling this cackling supervillain. That's just not how people are. I can think of people who act like public sphere pyromaniacs that has nothing to do with who they are as people with their personality and everything to do with the environment that they operate in and the incentives that act on them. But I, I agree, or at least I want to agree that this is probably not the majority of people. Most people do fundamentally believe that they're acting from a good place. And even beyond that, most of the time when people employ some sort of dishonesty in a conversation or or mm. straw man your argument or ma manipulate the, the discussion, redirect it in some dishonest way. Mm -hmm. uh, usually, I would say, I, I assume they don't do it fully intentionally or f in, with, in full awareness. Yeah. They would do it because that's how our minds work. Our minds are incredibly adept at, right. at shifting the conversation and playing with words right. and manipulating our social dynamic in a way that protects our beliefs or protects our area our of comfort, of our sense of identity. Anything that our yeah. brain has deemed is worth protecting, it will go mm -hmm. through immense lengths in order to guard. Yeah. Truth be damned, logic be damned, mm -hmm. even whatever I just said five minutes ago be damned. <laughs> And, and that's not, so, there's nothing evil about it. There's, and, and we all do it. We can't control mm, it. Right. Our brains are stronger than us. Yeah. I do think that yeah, was some, something exactly. that, um, that you were saying, Angel, like just a few months, moments ago about this, the, the capacity or the proclivity, I guess, to want to change or be changed, mm -hmm. I think is actually really fundamental to 
to potentially having more productive dialogue because I'm thinking because I'm thinking a lot about um, like kind of especially in the wake of George Floyd's murder and the kind of anti-racist kind of dialogue that was coming up. And I think Mm -hmm. one positive aspect of of this these conversations for me was that that uh, for me anyway the concept of anti-racism at least had this idea of like well i have like moral obligation to stand up for people and you can extrapolate this beyond just race right you have a moral obligation to uh to speak up for wrong when you see it um and if you if you don't do that like that speaks poorly upon you and your own you know moral behavior Mm-hmm. And so for me, I'm a person that's kind of, I find it difficult to jump into the fray. I'm much, I'm much more like a lay back and chill out back here kind of person, observe and watch. And so th- that formulation was actually kind of interesting to me because it was like, oh, well, I, I need to do better at calling, quote unquote, calling out bad behavior, at, at mm-hmm. naming things that I think are wrong. Um, but when I would it also comes put to- air quotes on do better, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> but when it comes to actually doing that, uh, I just, I don't really know how to do it. And even if it's even a good idea a lot of the times, because it puts you in the position of potentially speaking for someone who you don't know actually how they feel, if they if mm-hmm. they even feel wronged in this situation, it puts you in the position of assuming I am probably right and you are probably wrong. Um, and therefore, uh, I'm going to quote unquote call you out on this mm-hmm. wrongness. Um and And also buys into a binary worldview that there is a clear wrong that can be uh clearly delineated and that you should mm-hmm. be fighting and that you have the tools yeah. of actually seeing but it. But I still like the instinct. So I just I don't yeah, know. I wonder the, if you the if taste you of feel... a Medicean <laughs> worldview and moral righteousness. They're just mm, mm, too delicious to resist. <laughs> I mean because I would never jump into that kind of moment with my with like the guns blazing. Like I would never be like, hello person, you're wrong. Although there are people that that do. And I've seen it and I've seen it in my world in which people yeah. literally ask other people to stop talking or to leave a room or to, you know, right. to leave a listserv because of something they've said. Um right. but 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 part of me still thinks like maybe there is like a kernel of something like if you approach those those moments not in a please leave, you're wrong, but in a um I'm feeling something here that feels akimbo. Can we Mm -hmm. like name this tension and discuss it? Um, I don't know. I think that I guess what I'm saying is like these moments have a lot of combustibility and potential to go very wrong and uh, and not be productive or helpful. But part of me is kind of hopeful that there there's a form of that combustion that actually could be like that helpful good dissidence that we want. I think I think I know what you mean, Um, and I you know my my thing is I would never ask somebody to leave. I mean, if they were like physically being violent or obnoxious or something, then, then that's different. Right. Cause they've already kind of crossed a different line, but if, especially online, you know, I mean, you can just put your phone down, <laughs> like, you know, uh, so there's that, but, but it's also like, I don't have the bravado that some people have of thinking that they're right or so right that they can be as bold as to kind of impose it on other people, right? The best that I can do is say, look, this doesn't make any sense to me. What you're saying seems terrible. uh, And this is why. And being, you know, very, very sincerely being open to the fact that I might be misunderstanding something. So I, you know, you, you mentioned Monica, Monica Guzman. She's, she's amazing. And, and, 
it really is about entering those scenarios with curiosity. Like you're led by curiosity. You're led by like, okay, what could possibly be happening here to get you to see this differently than I'm seeing it? Because it's crystal clear to me. How come it isn't crystal clear to you? Or how come it's crystal clear to you what you think, but I can't see it, right? And I think, you know, you can make assumptions and you can say, well, it's because they're idiots or, or it's because they're terrible people or whatever. And I think, I think those are lazy answers to those questions because the real answer is much more complicated and much more interesting. And you just have, you have so much more to gain by approaching it that way. The other thing is just divorcing people from the ideas and arguments that they hold and, and endorse because your ideas are, you know, you feel like they're a part of you, but they're not really right? Like you're not the same person you were 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, right? You have different ideas. You have different opinions. You know, your, your mind changes. Are you, are you not you anymore? No, there's that, that thing that you call yourself is still there. The essence of you is still there, but you've just shifted. You know, this happens in both directions, right? People, people act like other people's ideas are them. And we also act like our ideas are us. And so when people attack ideas, we, we conflate that with attacking us as human beings. Mm -hmm. Like you're attacking who I am, not just what I right. think. And so we have to very consciously make those distinctions. I got to say, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sold on that idea. I, I, it's something that I definitely hear often being brought up as a way of mm. creating a, a healthier discourse. And it's not, well, now you've hurt my feelings. Yeah. <laughs> um, <Right? laughs> I, I mean, and, and obviously there is some right? truth to it. I'm personally offended right, right, right. by the fact that there right? is a degree, so there, there, there is going too far with it for sure. But, um, yeah. and I'm not advocating for creating uh, an, a, an identification with your ideas. I'm more skeptical of mm. our ability to really disentangle ourselves mm. from the idea that this is something that is in any in any sense achievable because the point of tension is <laughs> it's the, the it's our social animal when we hear somebody disagreeing with us it's not mm -hmm. like we think he is making a point about the ideas we just we, we read the 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 pack dynamic and we see somebody who's yeah. making noises at us that are threatening or hostile and we just immediately right. launch into the, the 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 responsive defensive wolf that lies within yeah. or or we retreat either way we feel attacked um so there mm -hmm. is something about you know the you need to be smart about the way you present your arguments and all that but ultimately and and but by which i mean also tone and body language and so many things that come into play that are right. that we've evolved to automatically read and respond to but mm -hmm. there's, I don't think there's really overriding that. And my instinct is that, I mean, mm -hmm. while this is certainly part of it and being more conscious of it probably will alleviate some of these tensions, I think that we also need to recognize that as a society, we need to just be, be talking about be, ac accepting some sort of hostility and some sort of um, if, 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 if you want to use the jargon of the left right now, some sort of conversational violence as not a bad thing, <laughs> as something that is not actually threatening. You know, that, that if, if, right. if, if a situation has combusted and somebody ran out of the room crying, this is something that is not ideal, but is resolvable. And that we, we can, as a mature society or as a mature group, handle 
and in the long term mollify and stop seeing the person who possibly caused the social combustion as deserving of ostracism. Right. Um, and that's where I think we need to grow up. Well, yeah, I mean, but you're, you're solving the issue, right? Like that's, that's exactly what, what I mean is recognizing, you know, so you, you pointed to a couple of things, but the first thing is that, you know, we have this human instinct, right? We can't help it. We are attached to our ideas and our worldview. And when, when our ideas and our worldviews are attacked, we feel attacked and we're going to have that instinct, right? Yeah. I don't know that we can ever turn that off, but we have plenty of instincts that we sublimate. We have plenty of, of natural mm. kind of evolved human behaviors that we, we, we already know how to control and funnel into more productive, uh, more productive ways of being, right? We know how to channel our aggression in, you know, into a punching bag instead of being violent. We know how to, we know how to do these things. You know, we can learn. And it's not that you don't feel that feeling, right? It's that you can become conscious of that feeling and then you can change the way you respond to it, right? So I still feel that thing. When someone's coming after something, and especially when someone's making a good point, I feel that thing. I feel that <laughs> knot in my stomach and I go, ah, oh, fuck. And I can't help it, right? But if you reconceptualize it, you can, you can train yourself to go, nope, no, don't do it. Don't do that. Don't do that thing that you know you want to do, right? What's happening right now is good. What's happening right now is good for you. And the reason you feel this thing is because it's actually growth. It's change. Something, something wonderful might, might happen in a minute, right? Keep listening. I wonder if it's something that, how much of this can be trained? Because I remember as a child, very much having that instinct of feeling simultaneously awful about being proven wrong about something, but also mm -hmm. having mm -hmm. that little itch of, oh, this is kind of fun. My life has just been oddly enriched by having my fallacies revealed. I actually think that the fact that my comfort with being proven wrong started at such an early age, it actually made me blind a little, or at least made me misjudge hmm. other people's comfort or discomfort with having their mistakes shown publicly, which again, makes me wonder how much of this is, you know, trainable and a matter of practice, getting that muscle ready. Um, but the second thing is my, my argument was more in, in the sec, whether or not this is solvable on the personal level, I think the second order of how we as groups respond to these moments when it combusts, when somebody takes it personally, is where mm -hmm. I would put the emphasis. Okay. We can't necessarily make the subjective experience of the moment for individuals more comfortable, more easy when they're inside the moment. But what we can do is establish norms for groups that say we've reached some intellectual altercation. That's fine. You've expressed your feelings and we can move on and reconcile. Mm -hmm. Signal as a group that we're not going to treat arguments punitively. Yeah, well, I think the second order comes from the first order. And the thing is that like people always ask, well, how does it scale, right? How, how can you scale this out? Well, you scale it out by, you know, what, what is a scaled out thing except a collection of individual things, right? Like what is, a, what is a system if not kind of, you know, a concatenation of smaller systems, right? And the thing is, we've already done it. Every single one of us have already done it. We've already had that moment where we learned something we didn't want to learn. We were kicking and screaming the whole way. 
And now here we are on the other end of it and we feel fine. We all know, right? I guess I'm imagining an alternative world where an author of Robin DiAngelo's fame, who's also a discount psychologist and a, and a corporate coach, rather than reintroducing segregation in a reimagined way into corporate America, does something like what we were discussing. Offers us a, a place where people can actually have the discomfort. Sure. I can see people like Misha, who's our, a friend of ours who thinks a lot about uh, group psychology, mm-hmm. taking that approach. On the personal level, you know, you'll do your growth on your time. But when we're coming together as a group, we will have rules that allow you to feel awful, you know, because people express political ideas you disagree with, Mm -hmm. but without any social stigma or any signaling that something wrong has just happened. Like, you know, in kindergarten, you you cry, you go to the corner, you, 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 and you get over it. (laughs) And after an hour, you realize it's fine. It's all fine. Yeah. And you rejoin the group. Well, I think, I think the, that's the thing is that that's kind of what our society is. That's what civil discourse is. That's what it's supposed to be doing for us. And the thing, I think the, the issue is that we've forgotten or we've neglected it, but that, that was the whole point. The whole point was, (laughs) no, you push back and I push back and it, it, it's uncomfortable, but at the end of the day, we get some, we don't kill each other. Like Mm -hmm. even our, even, even our, our, you know, our government is kind of, is deliberately structured so that, you know, anything that comes out is the result of friction. Right. Mm. Right. It, it's, it, there is no smooth way to get a bill passed. Right. Right. Mm. right. But the, the but, other thing though, is that like when you're, so we're, obviously we're big proponents of uncertainty. We are uncertain mm. things. <laughs> um, we're uh, big proponents of, you know, complexity, nuance, all the words we, you know, have overuse banned. and need to bleep out and have banned, mm-hmm. but I keep using anyway, because I'm, I'm mm-hmm. like that. But it's it, when you live in the gray, when you live in the uncertainty, it's very mm-hmm. hard to act, right? Nothing, it's for me anyway, personally, I'll put it in my myself. I find it very hard to to make decisions, to make moral uh, uh, deliberations or to mm-hmm. be, for example, an activist or to when you are living in very uncertainty because you see the sides of everything, right? Right. Um, and I'm curious how, because you, you in your work with FAIR, I mean, you do activism i believe you are acting how do you how how have you experienced that how do you navigate the seeing all sides but at the same time at the end of the day wanting to make a a difference in this world and thus having to act i think a lot of it comes from this idea that we really we really aren't as different as we think i think when you have that that sort of worldview it's not that you cannot act it's that you act differently it's that you act towards different things. You, you orient your action in a different way, right? I'm not worried about defeating the bad guys. I'm worried about figuring out what to do here. What's the best way forward here? Because I know that we all kind of want to move forward. Okay, so now we've found this, this common ground that supposedly didn't exist. Mm. Now what can we do together? What can we do about this? And we're talking within the U.S. right now, right? Because if we expand it too far, are, are we trying to star man Putin? Are we trying to also try to to have a, a bigger perspective of, I mean, and I think as, by the way, as intellectuals, as historians, as journalists, we actually should. I think those things are do matter to understand the world better. But 
but there's an extent to which we can um, afford that generosity uh, or the assumption that we share sufficient fundamental mm. human values or social values that we, we mm-hmm. just need to figure out the quibbles. Um, and at some point, you know, in theory, like during the Civil War, you could argue that it, it went beyond quibbles. Even if we ignore the question of the causes of the war, whether it was about slavery, as it was, or as what, what, what Pence said, that it was about uh, uh, state rights. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Even if we ignore that question, yeah. clearly the, the, it reached a point where politically and psychologically, the people involved couldn't dismiss it as a mere quibble. They had to go and kill each other to determine how right. we move forward. So we're basically mm-hmm. speaking in the space of we are still under a relatively stable system that allows us to have these conversations without um, regularly going out and murdering the other tribe. Right. So just basically going over this to make sure we're drawing some lines, that we have some limiting principle mm. in terms of what kind of community are we defending? Because when we talk about social norms and morality in the context of us just being humans, it runs the risk of becoming too, um, I guess, abstract. Um, even though I, I would hope, I would want, I, 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 in that sense, I'm, I always joke, I'm an imperialist. I want to see a world where we can actually talk about humanity as one big pluralistic society that somewhat adheres liberal norms. But it, it comes with a lot of difficulties if you want to do it seriously. Mm. But this isn't what we're doing yeah. right now. For now, we're trying to figure out how to have conversations, at least in this country, right? So when you're talking about us having enough in common to have some foundational baseline for debate, what do you see that as? What do you see as the cultural glue in the U.S.? It's kind of hard to see it when you're inside, right? Mm. It's kind of, I think that, that, again, we're so zoomed in that we kind of go past all the commonality and then focus on the parts that we disagree about. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think everybody has a fundamental desire for freedom and dignity. You know, like mm-hmm. the, the, the thing of like, you know, um, liberty and the pursuit of happiness, right? Like I think people, people get into the words and people get into who wrote it and people start getting angry there. But I think, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is something that as an, as a kind of general concept, everyone would be like, yes, of course. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then what probably they would argue with is like, you know, that was a lie that was never mm-hmm. given to us, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Fine. But the value is still there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think, you know, again, it's, it's kind of what we said up top where we have fundamental human values. You know, what is it that motivates us to do anything? Why are we doing any of this? because we're we're trying we're striving towards this thing that we're wired to do which is to have a better conscious experience really that's what it boils down to like ultimately what we want is a better conscious experience because we're sitting here and we're experiencing stuff we want it not but to But the suck. difficulty is that even our desire for a better conscious experience is to a large extent informed by our cultural upbringing and cultural yeah. upbringing could require us to go and murder other tribes because some uh, yep. we were just having this conversation with Yasha Munk and my one of my challenges to his vision of a diverse democracy is that if you want to allow certain groups to fully express themselves well sometimes oppression is the way that they express themselves sometimes oppression right. is the secret sauce for the group unity what do you do about that yeah. 
the same thing we do about every other societal rule we have, right? Like I, I have the freedom to move around. I can move as I please, right? I'm free to do that, but I can't punch you in the face, right? The minute, the minute my fist connects with your face, I have, I have now crossed the boundary because what I'm doing is inhibiting your ability to move as you please, right? And there, we, we know that these boundaries exist. There's no such thing as, you know, this, this kind of magical freedom that people, people talk about in the abstract, like, oh, I'm not actually free because I have to stop at this red light. I'm not actually free because I can't just walk around naked outside, <laughs> right? Like that's silly because yeah, it never meant that. You know, it couldn't have meant that, you know, people say it about free speech too. Like they're like, oh, you know, it's not free speech if people get angry with me and start yelling at me for what I said. Like, that's crazy. Basically what you're saying is you want, you want inconsequential speech, right? You, you either, you either want it so that everyone agrees with everything you say, which is ridiculous and impossible, or you want it so that you can say whatever you like and it will have no effect, hmm. right? Because those are the only options there. Mm. Right. The, the, and the re in reality, what you want is you, what you want is for the things you say to matter. Right. And if they're going to matter, they're going to be received by people in different ways. People are going to react negatively and you're going to have to take that. That's part of what comes with that freedom that you want. Right. And now we can talk about boundaries there where it's like, all right, look, all I did was say this thing and you've gone way too far in response. We can talk about that. But but generally speaking, this idea of freedom that people have is nonsensical. You know, this, this idea of like, I'm not actually free because there are rules. Well, you mm. need rules in order for there to be freedom, right? It's kind of like a sonnet or something. It's very restricted, right? There's a very restricted well, Yeah, form, but I'm, I'm actually suggesting right? that sometimes you need even more rules for certain people to actually experience their, not necessarily freedom, but their... I, what right. we're talking about is identity in this case. And because you talk about both yeah. freedom and dignity and people derive their yeah. dignity usually from their the, whatever cultural right. associations that they had and the question is for mm -hmm. me is to what extent do you allow you know the state or even just our cultural norms to diminish the quote-unquote dignity mm -hmm. of other groups is it legitimate to go the way that many european states have gone to uh, ban wearing the muslim veils for instance that's where our yeah, beliefs I mean, in in a pluralistic society really gets tested i think yeah i think I, I mean there there are cases where it's complicated there are cases where it's difficult but something like that i, I i'm against right like i'm not a religious person i'm i don't believe in a deity and and i think religion is generally kind of like a bad bad os to be running on on our on our 20 21st century brains but but I would never do that. Well, well because, our brains are actually ancient hardware, right? Well, you know, like 21st century model yeah. of 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 the old old human brain. Right? <laughs> what, what I mean is, I always say, I always say, like being religious now is like having is like running Windows 95 on your 2022 MacBook, mm. right? Like, I guess you could do it. You could figure out some way to make it work. But why the hell would you do that? There's so many bugs, and there's such better software. You know, like you can just do better than that, in my opinion. Mm. But um. But I wouldn't do something like like banning the veil, right? Mm. I, or, or the hijab. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't ban the burkini because, first of all, it has unintended side side effects, right? Like the first one would be, and this, I, I, you know, I remember Sarah Hader talking to Sam Harris about this. Um, 
you know, a burkini ban and I think in France or something where, you know, you can't, you can't go to the beach and wear that, right? Like, because they consider it oppressive to women, which I, I agree, right? I think, I think that's, the practice is rooted in that, right? But the consequence of you doing that is not that these women are now going to get to wear swimsuits like everybody else. The consequence is that they're not going to go to the beach now, right? So now you've actually removed something from them. You've, you've given them even less leeway to do something because the restriction that you're trying to point to hasn't been changed, right? The, the ideas that are prompting them to wear that thing or the, the circumstances under which they're wearing that thing haven't changed. You've just made it so that you don't have to see it. Um, so, you know, that's, that's the reason why these things are tricky, right? But, but again, it's, it's kind of what I said, like, you know, my, my fist and your nose can't connect. That's, that's the boundary. And so if, if somebody says, well, my culture is that I, you know, <laughs> something ridiculous, like, you know, my culture is that I oppress other people. That's, that's the only way I can find dignity. We have to say, well, I'm sorry, but that's incompatible with living all together in this society. Like that's a concession you're going to have to make because otherwise you become the only person who has the dignity. My instinct yeah. there is that there is something in the group oppression of its own members that is significant, not just for the group in the philosophical sense, but also right. for its members to recognize that they are part of that group. So it's the oppression that right. gives them a sense of belonging. It's a, it's a mm -hmm. melancholy, uh, pessimistic thought that I've been toying with in the past um, year or so, but I'm, Okay. But I, but I, and I'm not sure I'm fully convinced by it, but I'm just thinking that the problem with liberal democracy, which is something that I generally, I'm an advocate, I'm a proponent, I'm a booster, right? Okay. I support liberal democracy and darn it, I don't care who knows that. <laughs> One of the difficult criticisms of a liberal democracy, the form that we get in the US, which is a very good model in terms of assimilation, in terms of, of, enabling cultural mm -hmm. diversity without too much cultural warring between different groups and different nationalities. Um, right. The problem with that model is that over time it erodes the uniqueness and the, the ties of communities often. And that you can, and often the communities that do get to stick together do so based on some form of in-group oppression. And I use the word loosely, but the thing that keeps you part of a group is kind of the sense of danger or consequences of leaving that group. Mm. That's why groups develop rights branding you as part of them, right? Yeah. Because it, it makes it something that is indelible to your identity. And when we become more and more vague in our cultural connections and, and we become more and more um, assimilated into this fluffy sense of America as the land of baseball and hot dogs then mm -hmm. we lose the, the thing that actually optimized for human happiness mm. in some um, more primordial way, tribal primordial way. Yeah. So I, if, if, if I'm understanding you right. Um, so I live, in, I live in Queens in New York. So do we. Right. And it's, oh, nice. So, so you probably know it's the most diverse concentration of ethnic people, of like ethnic background in the world. Right. In this patch of land, there's more ethnic diversity than anywhere else in the world. World's borough. Right? Yeah. So, which is a beautiful thing. And, you know, I have the, the excess weight around my belly to speak, <laughs> you know, 
to, to show for that. Um, and it's, it's a wonderful thing. And I think that, I think that the problem is that we look at, we look at things like culture we look at things like our, our quote unquote tribes too rigidly. Um, because you know, there's still Greek food and there's still a Greek restaurant right around the corner from my apartment and it's still Greek, but it's also Queens and it's also New York and it's also American, right? Those are concentric circles. And we are carrying out this experiment, whether we like it or not, this American experiment. We are, we are not blood and soil. We are, that is not the foundation of America, right? That is not, we are unique in that our nation was founded upon ideas and that we are by definition, many peoples brought together under the, the ages of those ideas. That is the, that is the, the goal. That's the aspiration, right? We've failed and we've we've really made a mess many times and we still have and we still do but that's the that's the goal that's the aspiration right we are we are you know out of many one right that is the idea as we carry out this experiment culture is going to change right um italian americans today are very different from italian americans 100 years ago and they're very different from italians who came over and you know, immigrated to the United States, right? They're they're going to be nearly unrecognizable to each other in many many ways, but in many many ways, they're also identical. They're still the same. So there's something about culture that we have to recognize is constantly shifting, constantly moving. It's 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 an it's a consistent kind of engagement with reality, and it shifts all the time. We need to understand that. And we need to understand the the luxury that we have and the responsibility that we have. This American project that we're doing something really, really beautiful and really powerful. We're creating something brand new. We're still doing it, right? It hasn't been. It's not finished. It never will be, right? But two hundred and fifty something years or whatever it is, you know, we are we are doing something incredibly new, and it's difficult and messy, but. That is the beautiful thing. We need to preserve that. Mm. Everything else we need to recognize is it's it's water in our fingers, right? Between our fingers. Like it's just going to slip through if we try to grab it. That's not how it works. So I, I want to ask you, Angel, about kind of more um, I, identity type questions. And I, mm-hmm. I, I definitely want to talk to you about uh, the word Latinx because that's oh, something I really... <laughs> I really enjoyed reading your article on that. But before before I ask, if we have time, before we ask you about Latinx specifically, I'm just curious, like more broadly, when you think about mm-hmm. identity, do we put too much stock in this concept of kind of cultural, racial, ethnic identity? How do you feel about the way Americans, particularly in political conversation, but even in just like everyday conversation, uh, do we put too much onus on it? Yeah, I think we put the wrong emphasis on it. The best way that I can articulate it is, you know, for those of you who can see this, if anybody can see this, or if anybody has seen my picture, right, you can see what I look like. What does that tell you about me? Nothing, right? Nothing at all. Pretty much nothing, except the literal physical things that you can see, right? How long my hair is, whether I have a beard, you know, the skin tone I have. Like, you can tell those things, but that doesn't tell you anything about me, really, right? And then if I, if, even if I give you some details where I say, you know, I'm, I'm first generation Dominican American, um, and I've, I'm born and raised in and around New York city. What do you know about me now? 
pretty much nothing still. Probably less because you now have to fight stereotypes and assumptions that are flooding in just automatically, right? But if I tell you that my favorite song is Bohemian Rhapsody, right? Or if I tell you that my favorite movie is Pulp Fiction, or if I tell you that, you know, I really love playing guitar and Led Zeppelin is my favorite band, you know, like if I tell you these things, suddenly you start to see who I am. Suddenly you start to distinguish me from these characteristics that put me in these groups that people think are so important, right? Suddenly you start seeing who I am. And that, that is the part that matters, right? Because if, if you really want to know me, those are the details you need to get into, right? What kind of food do I like? What do I like to do for fun? You know, what do I think about this or that subject? And you can't assume those things. Because if you assumed what music I like based on my ethnic background, you'd probably be wrong, mm-hmm. right? If you assume what kind of music I like based on even how I'm dressed, you'd probably be wrong. That's the problem. But it's not, but it's not completely devoid of content. No, it, it, tells, it tells you something. You something. It tells you something, but I think we overemphasize what yes. that something is or means yes. and what we can extrapolate from it. Right. It's, it's mostly garbage. It's mostly noise. But we yeah. are formed by some, some communal experience that, is off, that, that does replicate itself in some ways. People who grew up, it, it, there is a type of people who grew yeah. up in Israel, and that's a very small community, in term, globally speaking. Right. But you can tell for instance, my argumentativeness, mm-hmm. as much as I would like to see it as an idiosyncrasy, is not that uncommon among my brethren. Yeah, of course. But but it's it it's just as possible that you could be an outlier. Right. right. It's just as possible that you could end up, you could have been the one person in your entire neighborhood who wasn't like right. that. Mm. And then constantly being mistaken for people who are like that. Right. And then you would have to be like, oh my God, yeah, everybody always thinks that about me, right? And that's me. I, right. I'm, I'm constantly being mistaken for things or for believing things or thinking things or doing things that I don't do, yeah. that I don't believe, that I don't like, right? Because people make these assumptions. So that has made me hyper aware of this, this you know, the, the, the just crudeness of this rubric that we have, right? And, and, and the way it can be kind of racist in itself right like this is a this absolutely is tricky um, the, le- yeah. the left puts so much emphasis on on race with good intention and then inadvertently yeah. kind of replicate a lot of it's, racist thinking right? right because in order to, to in order to operate at the, at the level that we're operating we need to essentialize because otherwise we can't get anything done we're going to keep you know what i what i what i've been saying is that we we fail to either zoom in close enough to the individual level or we fail to zoom out far enough to the human level. We like to operate in this low resolution middle area where everything's kind of out of focus and we do stupid things as a result. That's the problem, right? So what do you want to do? Well, if you care about the, the, the group level thing, go all the way out to the human level and say, well, human beings are suffering. Let's, let's fix that, right? And yeah, these human beings in this area are the ones that are suffering. Cool, focus on that, right? But the, the race thing just makes it more complicated. So people talk about poverty and they talk about, well, you know, um, quote unquote, black people are disproportionately poor. Okay, but still go after poverty and you will disproportionately aid those mm. people anyway, right? I, that seems like a better idea, you know? Or zoom in on the individual level and say, no, look, what we really should be doing is seeing you 
for who you are and not assuming these things and treating you like an individual and that we don't actually know anything about you until we, we actively get to know you. Those are the two, the two ways we should be operating, you know? Um, and not to say like, oh, we're all human beings, kumbaya, everything's fine. No, it's not. It's not fine. And it's not like you can't care about Americans because you're the American government, right? Like that's your job. So it's not, it's not that those are the only two places to operate in, but this idea that for some reason, you know, the racial thing, which, which, you know, race is just nonsense to begin with, but that this is the best place with which, you know, from which to work. It just makes no sense to me. It's it just, it obscures so much more than it clarifies and it, Mm. It complicates so much more than it needs to. It's just not necessary. Mm-hmm. Well, my follow-up would just be, because I've been struggling with, with this as well, because I'm, a, I'm in the lefty circles and I believe racism is bad. And <laughs> I... <laughs> like, <laughs> Shut, hot <yeah>. take. <laughs> I know, amazing. What a concept. I know. Yeah. Um, and I do, and I think about things like, for example, like I think representation matters and I think it is important to, to like, if I'm doing an event, I want to try and get uh, folks of color and I want to try and get, mm-hmm. I know you don't like that phrase, but um, and I want to try and get like gender, different gender diversities and I want to get age and I want to get like, ideally I will have a, a, mm-hmm. a plethora of representation. But I, so I, I, at the same time as I see the, like, there is some benefit to thinking in these kind of racialized ways. I also yeah. completely understand what you and often Adam says, which is that, no, you're just basically being racist when you're just like looking yeah. for brown people to fill your That's, quota. Right. Because what are you doing when you say, when you say, oh, I want to make sure that, you know, this crew that I'm, that I'm putting together is diverse. Okay, cool. Let's get Angel. You didn't say anything about what Angel does, what Angel is good at, what Angel cares about. No, it's just let's get Angel because then it'll look like we've found diversity, mm. right? That's the problem. The problem is that that, is, that becomes by necessity what you must do mm. because that's the level that you're operating at. That's what you're looking at and what matters in that moment. And I get that, you know, yeah, representation does matter, you know, and I have a piece actually I wrote about this coming out for Fair Substack, which should be out, I think, in a week or so. Nice. Um, but we have to be careful not to be superficial about it. Like we have to be careful not to inadvertently echo the problem that we're trying to solve by, by being conscious about diversity and representation, right? So again, you have to zoom in onto the individual level. And if, you know, if the thing is that <clears throat> um, this ethnic group is not present, right, in whatever, you know, this writing room, right? We're not, we don't have any people of this background. What's up with that? Okay, that's a great question. That's a great thing to be mindful of and point out. And it's a great thing to do something about. But what you do about it matters, right? So what are we going to do? Are we just going to superficially make it look like we fixed the problem by just bringing a bunch of people in who look the way we want them to look? Or are we going to see why people from that background are not finding themselves in this room? Why really? Right. So like, you know, uh, the symphony orchestra example of like, they want to remove blind auditions because not enough of this group is represented in the orchestra. They're phenomenal. Right? They want to bring back unblind color mindful auditions right. so that they ensure that they select people of the right complexion. Right. And the thing is that 
you know, again, well-intentioned, right? Like you're seeing something that, that you think is wrong, right? It's pointing to a, to a problem, right? Even I would say it's a problem, not even a potential problem, right? Like clearly there's a certain group of people who are not finding themselves here. And it would be ridiculous to say they don't appreciate music. They don't play music, right? That's crazy. What's actually happening? What's actually happening is things like there's no music program in the schools where those people generally are concentrated and live, right? There's no access to violins and cellos and trumpets and all those things because their music program is underfunded or doesn't exist, right? So it makes sense that 20 years later, when people are auditioning for the symphony orchestra, you're not going to see anybody from there, right? Because if, you know, like it's the same thing of, of you know, if, if a kid is never given a book, if a kid is never taught to read, they're not going to be scholars. It's just not going to happen, right? They, that's a prerequisite. So go back to there. Create a program that ensures music programs for these kids. Give them the opportunity to, to become enamored with this and to, to learn their instruments. And then maybe 10 years, 20 years down the line, you'll start getting auditions from people in that background, from that background. That's the real way to do it. But that takes too long. That's not sexy. That's not something people can get reelected on or elected on, right? So that's the reason why, you know, it's much more difficult. You're planting a seed that will become the tree that will bear the fruit that you will never eat because it takes too long. Right. But that's what you really should be doing. The superficial mm-hmm. stuff is just to make ourselves feel better. It doesn't really do anything. I feel like a lot of what what anti-racist work is these days is unfortunately on the superficial level. And I think, you know, Adam complains yeah. about this all the time. Where it's and like, it's understandable. You know, it's understandable because... You know, well, first of all, it's a big problem. (laughs) Yeah, it's a big problem, but it's not even like they're just trying to avoid doing the real work. It's that it's hard to even see what the real work Mm. must be, right? And and if you have certain assumptions about like, well, clearly this hiring process is racist, right? Like that's that's a logical first assumption to make, right? Like, well, how come these people aren't here? Well, they must be being discriminated against. That makes sense, right? But I think people just stop there. And they don't think it through further. And, and, you know, most of the time, I would imagine, that's not actually the reason. There's a more complicated reason. And then also steal their belief of where the problem is with more conviction and more, and more zeal to fix that <laughs> conviction. And that's where I, I yeah. get um, um, triggered. Uh, the, I, I'm glad that you did point out <laughs> your, uh, I guess, our shared discomfort with the phrase people of color. Where at the same time you are collectively otherizing a whole host, a whole variety of different groups of people, but at the same time essentializing that otherness is a core part of their identity. It sounds like something from the, the fucking 1940s. I'm just, that's just my own gripe. I don't understand American language yeah. sometimes. It's, it sounds to me like if a foreigner like myself would be called a person of foreignness. You know, because the thing that defines you isn't what you do think or how you define yourself, but just this vague, overly general (laughs) attribute that sets you outside of the majority group. I I don't understand. Well, anyway, getting into terminology we hate, I swear this will be the last question. (laughs) (laughs) Then you can get on with your day. Um, No, but I read your article about why you hate the term Latinx. And mm-hmm. I, I had been wondering why I didn't like it either. And I couldn't figure out what it was about it that <laughs> it was like irking me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I heard it at work the first time. Um, and 
I, I mean, I'm I I call myself white Hispanic. I do put on that that label. That's how I describe myself. Oh, you shouldn't do that. I I, I we could, that's a whole other conversation. But that's <laughs> how I that. I describe myself. But um, I never liked Latinx, and I loved reading your article. So can you explain why Latinx is lexical imperialism? Yeah, that's just a fancy. <laughs> I you know, it's funny that people like that and that it, it caught on. Uh-huh. Because I was kind of just being a dick. I was just joking. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I do think that's what it is. Because it's an imposition of, you know, what are considered superior norms on from from the outside onto the language, right? It's it, you know, these aren't um, you know, Central and South American delivery drivers using this language, right? This isn't this isn't, you know, you're you're, you know, a bartender. This isn't, you know, a grocery store owner. This isn't this isn't this isn't the majority of Latin or Spanish speaking people, right? These are people in academia, right? And some of them are Latin or Spanish speaking, right? Some of them are from that background or part of this, but it's they they're prioritizing that sort of academic, you know, social justice mindset and they're operating that way and they're imposing it back down onto the language. And I just don't like it, right? I think <laughs> I mean, I, I just think it's like if silly, you don't, if right? like you just, it doesn't make sense. The construction doesn't make sense when you're speaking in Spanish. You, you like, right? Like, what would you do? Like, Latin, so Latinx. I don't, I just, I don't know. Say, it sound right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people say it's unpronounceable. That's actually not true. You can figure out a way to pronounce it. Latin, Latinx. Uh huh. You know, you can say Latinx, but but it's more. It's not really about that. You know that that's silly. But it's it's more about the fact that it's. It's this symbolic breaking of the language in order to signal something about how you feel about gender, right? That's what it's, that's what it's meant to do. Um, it's, right. like, it's meant no, to we, be we, more inclusive to yeah, all it's meant genders. To be, right. and, yeah. It's meant to be more inclusive. It's meant to be like, oh, we don't believe in the binary, right? And I get that, but the language is structured that way. That's just the way the language is, right? And, and it's, it's not this, you know, Sapir Sapir Wharf hypothesis thing of like your language dictates the way you think. Like that's not that's not what's going on, right? Nobody thinks that the sun has a penis because it's called el sol, right? That's not how it works. And it's just this symbolic thing. So the thing that annoys me about it first of all is just that it it's an unnecessary signal, right? Because if you really if you really were concerned about the gender thing, and you know most people who are using this speak english so so if you're really concerned about the gender thing the word latin is sitting right there just use that just say latin right or say hispanic or whatever right mm-hmm. or or be more specific because this idea of like the latin community that's like dozens of countries and thousands and thousands and thousands of different people and cultures and all these you know it's crazy right mm-hmm. you're lumping again and it's silly so the whole thing is ridiculous mm-hmm. but but it's also because you know, it's it's being imposed from this hyper elite and super fraction of of the population, right? It's, uh, that sur- that survey that they did, I think it was two or three percent of people actually prefer the term, right? And forty percent actively dislike it, mm. right? So you're talking they must about have never heard of it when that poll yeah, was taken. Well, well, many people never heard of it or don't care. Mm. Right. But but the fact is that that we're talking about 97, 98 percent of people do not prefer that term to be used on them. And yet 
people are using it like it's it's consensus. And right. that's ridiculous, right? If you want to use it, great. If you want to call yourself that, great. And people who want to be called that, go for it. Let's call them that, right? I will I will throw you that bone. <laughs> but but this imposition is the is the thing that annoys me. And the reason for the imposition, you know, what I said in the piece is that it's kind of like this fight club nod. Like, mm. you know, I use that term. That means you know what team I'm on. You know mm. what I'm you know I'm down with the thing. That's mm. what it is. It's not really about it's not really about Spanish speaking people at all. It's about right. signaling to the people who know that you're on their team. And that and that, you know, you can leave me out of that, right? <laughs> like, signal some other way and and stop calling me Latinx. Right. That's Don't gross. bring me into this for God's sake. <laughs> yeah, like do whatever you want. I get it. And if you want to call yourself that, if you're if you're of that persuasion and you like it, I would never take it away from you. You know, feel free, call yourself whatever you like. But don't pretend like this is some majority thing. It's an imposition by a very, very small minority on the majority. And most people are really offended by it because it's like, why are you calling me that? And you're fucking up my language. Mm -hmm. Our language is, you know, the poetry of Spanish, the beauty of Spanish is that it has these gendered things and there's all this beautiful stuff you can do with it linguistically. It comes from the structure and there's no reason why the structure must dictate some kind of you know, misogynistic thinking or, or, you know, hyper binary thinking where we don't respect trans people. It's not the language, right? The bigotry against trans people has nothing to do with the gendered language of Spanish. It's about the machismo and the, mm. and all that other stuff that is cultural. And right. you're going to, you have a harder job to do there. So you should, you should get to work <laughs> or we should get to work. You know, I'm, I'm totally down with the project of <laughs> tolerance and stuff, but <laughs> You know, it's, it's silly. It's silly that you think you're doing something here. The only thing you're doing is signaling. Oh, like it, it reminds me one of my oldest um, Huffington Post articles from what was it, 2014? It was like about the early trends at the time. Well, I guess not really early because this thing goes back at least to the 80s. But one of the um, resuscitated attempts to eradicate sexism by purging the English language of misogynistic phrases. But it was so nonsensical. And this idea that we are dragged by, by language and that we cannot control mm. ourselves because if the language puts us in a racist, misogynistic or, you know, anti-Semitic mindset, we have nothing to do about this. No, I, I, I encourage my friends to say, don't Jew me. But that's me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can see the issue. Well, some people are comfortable with this, but I mean, I, I, give, you, I give you the permission. <laughs> I, I release you, you from like, guilt. Yeah. I, I grant you the church indulgences <laughs> to use those phrases <laughs> but the point is that we culturally define what the value of the words are not the other way around the words don't define the culture my point is that by using these phrases we are denuding them of their sinister history and by the way even the word sinister is a sinister history because it comes from left-handed so that should be triggering yeah i mean it's you know it's it's also it's also insulting to the intelligence of basically everyone because <laughs> what you're saying is you you do not have the capacity to separate and complicate concepts right? right like when i say hey you guys i don't i don't actually think that everyone i'm speaking to is male right, right? <laughs> i understand the context and i understand the intention there i understand that words can be shifted and mutated and used in different contexts for different purposes right and like yeah like what you're talking about adam where it's like you know we're going to change the spelling of women so that it doesn't say men in it we're just going to give it a Y instead of the E at the end. You know, like that's stupid. It's just symbolic nonsense meant to signal something. It's not meant to actually accomplish anything. What did that accomplish? Nothing. Men are still douchebags. <laughs> and 
that's just, you know, people, right? And like women, women didn't get any kind of, nothing came of that, you know, like, oh man, since we changed that spelling, like our rights have really improved. No, that's ridiculous, right? It has nothing to do with anything except signaling. Mm. It's just like, hey, I'm part of this team. And whatever, if you want to do it, go for it. But it's I not just to say language uh, shouldn't update naturally and no, evolve exactly. over and, and, time. That's fine. That's fine. Which is also yeah, in no, your that, that was my sure. rant back then. Also back in in yeah. 2014, this was the idea. This is why it's embarrassing beyond the commonsensical uh, absurdity. It's also yeah. ab- ab- obnoxious academically because this is you, yes. you should know. If you are taking it's those silly. studies seriously, that language does not really have that mystical power over culture. M- language right. trails after culture, and when and and, right. and that's why and the meaning of those words, like you said, like hey guys, it changes because the culture changes. So everybody in right. their brains when they hear the fucking word sees a diverse picture of people. Probably in the 1940s, right. when somebody would say hey guys, if somebody said that in the 1940s, you they would be imagining right. a, a a group of white men. In, in a room. You're like, say, fellas. Playing craps. Yeah. Yeah. But now we're yeah. imagining something different because right. the culture has changed. Words, words are carriers of meaning. They are not meaning itself. We have to give it meaning and the way we give it meaning is culture and context. And we, we pretend like that's not real. We pretend like that's not true, but we know it's true because we do it all the time. Where we do it all the time. And, so. Before we throw the the final um, closer question at you, I, uh, this reminds me of my favorite little anecdote about the Soviet Union. At some point, I forgot the name of the office. It's a subdivision of the censor's office that actually dealt mm-hmm. with um, copy editing. Because at that point, basically everybody has already absorbed the propaganda. Everybody realized whether they were politicians, writers, um, journalists, they understood what they were allowed to say and what not. So they just comported with the rules. But at that point, how do you call out the, the, the heretics? How do you sift through such conformity? You look at punctuation. And one of the most <laughs> criminal punctuations at, in the 1950s, I think, in the late Stalin era, were hyphenating counter-revolutionary. So if you wrote counter-revolutionary, <laughs> it was, and I think that's a direct quote from one of the censors, it was the height of political um, sedition. Wow. The height of political yeah. sedition. Because otherwise there was that's... no more sedition to call out. Right. People writing critiques of ballet performances were waxing about how the elegant movements were an homage to the ultimate triumph of the revolution and the, the ascent of the proletariat. There just weren't any real traders left. There was a supply problem right. with traders. So they had to That's keep insane. searching in ever-shrinking corners, like the hyphenation of wow. the word counter-revolutionary. That is crazy. Wow. <laughs> Our final question, this is, uh, this is the thing that we throw at, 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 at uh, whenever we remember, I guess, but, but it would be interesting to hear what you think. Um, Blind spots. What do you see from from where you're seated at Queens, looking at the people that you look at? What do you see as the blind spot currently of the right, and what's the blind spot on the left? The biggest one. It's the same blind spot. That it's it's that the people on the other side are people. They're human beings, just like you, and they care about their families. They want to be loved. They want the world to be fair. They want the world to be better than it is. They want to be free. They want to feel like their life is going somewhere. 
that's true of everybody. And both both sides of that political divide, that political binary, either forget that or pretend that they don't know it. And that's that's the biggest blind spot in the world is those people that you disagree with, those people who you think are insane and are doing insane things, which I have plenty of those opinions, right? But they're still people. They love their kids. They love their families. They care about them. They love food. They love music. They love movies. You know, they love to have fun with their friends and loved ones. They celebrate holidays just like you, right? Like all these things are true and we forget because it's inconvenient to remember those things when we're viciously attacking one another. But we have to remember and we have to change the way we, we interact with one another based on that recognition. Angel, do you ever lose we your should. temper? Yeah, all the time. <laughs> in in <laughs> the, the public time. sphere? Yeah. Well, it's easier in the public sphere because I can just put my phone down. Mm. Like I can, you know, you know, you know I do the a lot pure. of drafts. I, I, I do a lot of drafting and deleting, mm. you know, like I'll, I'll start to say something and then I'll catch myself and I'll be like, ah, mm. I'm a little too angry right now. Let me take a minute. Right. Um, I lose my temper. Sure. I'm not, I am not, uh, you have such serenity and composure in your, in your demeanor and tone. I was just like, <laughs> you're so, you're so Zen. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm currently not really being, being antagonized. Right. So ah, I did a bad exactly job. Am. You failed it, Dom. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's, and, I, and I'm, you know, because I have this kind of commitment to being, to trying my best to, to be an example of the kind of thing that I think we need to be doing, you know, I'm, I'm hyper aware, especially when I'm being recorded of, of how, how I'm behaving and making sure that I'm being that paragon that I want to be, you know, I fail all the time, but I'm, I'm trying my best. And so I guess that hyper awareness is, is useful. Right. And it's something that maybe not everybody has because they're not as particularly concerned with, you know, forwarding that thing, but they should be. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. We are uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Uncertain Pod on the social media and share us with your friends and enemies. Until next time, stay sane.